he loved those moments that he could just really relax and be himself in the presence of his closest and dearest friends. But you got a chance to see the real man. You know, he was a mixture of all that's good, good things, fun things, love to eat. Hi, and welcome to Zernona Clayton, the podcast. I'm your host, broadcast journalist, and also a family friend, Michelle Miller. And we'll hear from Ms. Clayton, or as I like to call her, Biggie. Big or the queen of the town. She is an incredible, wonderful, brilliant woman who for the last 93 years has been an activist, a civil rights visionary, and a broadcast media pioneer. Oh, what a life she's led. Well, like, what do I call you? Uh, well, if you said bigger, they won't know what you're talking about. Oh, yes, they will. Okay. Why don't we explain that? Well, you know, make it clear. That's what, that's my name to you. Yeah, you're big. Yeah. Where did this notion of, I mean, the, it, there's such a formality that people hold with you. I don't think I've heard people call you by your first name except family. Um, but I don't think I've heard people call you by your first name ever. Even people who've known you for a very, very long time. And I don't hear you call people by their first name. It's always Mr. or Mrs. or Miss. I mean, there are some exceptions, but what is it with that level of formality? It was always Dr. King. It was always Mr. So-and-so or Mrs. So-and-so what, or Congressman So-and-so. What is that? Um, I think if I had to analyze it, it's just I try real hard, never get common with people. I first meet them. That's the first thing. I don't ever play people cheap. Ugly people, yes. And there's some people who try to be ugly with me, and I just refuse to spend the time to deal with ugliness. I don't even like negative people. I don't even like negative stuff. If I can't say something good, I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time speaking about a person's ill character. It's a waste of time, you know. I enjoy fun, a fun relationship. Fun, fun, fun. Light stuff. And I try not to run their business. Well, people say I try to run their business, but maybe I'm, I'm guilty of that. But What do you mean by that? I mean, run tell people what to do. You know. <laughs> I guess I'm guilty. You? I guess I'm guilty of that. Uh, I do dip into... Well, you little bossy, Miss Clay. Yeah. <laughs> I do you know, dip into the, some of the business sometimes. But it's because I like people. I don't do that to everybody. I'm not trying to run everybody's life. But I do get in a little slippy in a little bit every now and then and give them a piece of my advice that they didn't ask for. But <laughs> that's a privilege I take because I'm old enough to do it. That's why I'll put it today. I don't think there's, there, there was an age that was attached to it back in the day. <laughs> well, maybe not. You're pressing me now. You're pressing me hard. 
<laughs> I want people to see Biggie like for. Like I'm gonna say, I mean, I'm gonna say to you, but you don't know me that well, Michelle. <laughs> 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 but there's such a fun. I mean, I think that when people see, it's like with Dr. King. I think people only saw one side of this man. That fun-loving, hilarious description, the prankster at times, the person who was really a human like the rest of us. I think that a lot of times we don't showcase people, they don't see our humanity. And I, I just, like, I just, I see, I, I've seen you in that light. I've seen I've seen so much of that humanity of Big. Do you guard it? Well, when you mentioned Dr. King, I have to say that's the funniest man I've ever met. Really? And nobody would ever believe that. But he loved humor. And he was good at it. Like when, if we're in the privacy of a hotel room and nobody but a few of us close friends he loved, there's nothing he loved better than to tell stories, you know, just sit around telling stories. Oh, that was fun, fun, fun. He would tell a story, and he had linguistic fervor to his personality, like he could speak. And when he got through with his story, I mean, you're on the floor. Because he makes a story come alive, like, you know, a Frenchman says this, and the, Italian said this and this, you know, and the colored man on the street said this. Only in very small circles. He didn't do that with crowds. But he would laugh harder than we would, you know. He loved those moments that he could just really relax and be himself in the presence of his closest and dearest friends. But you got a chance to see the real man, you know, he was a mixture of all that's good, good things, fun things, love to eat, um, and what was his what was his favorite food? Food, anything <laughs> <laughs> edible, um, but uh, he liked anything, big. Yeah, he he really loved to eat. Um, and one day he said to me, you know, someone's always talking good about you. And everybody paints such a beautiful picture of you as if you could do everything. And I said, well, I'm very flattered that that's the case. He said, but I bet you can't cook. And I said, <laughs> well, maybe I can't, but I bet you I could make you think I can. And so he set up a dinner date. He was going to come to my house, and I was going to cook. Well, I really didn't know how to cook. And so I called my church members, and I said, listen, Martin Luther King's coming to my house for dinner. And I asked him what his favorite food was, and he said, Salisbury steak. Salisbury steak? <laughs> oh, my gosh. I don't know how to do that. So uh, I called my church lady and said, how do you fix that? Well, she gave me a recipe for making it palatable. Well, I said, now, one condition, I don't, you can't come to my house late now because I'll spoil whatever I'm fixing. Uh, I'll ruin it because you're late. 
And he said, okay, well, he came early, but he stayed on the phone because he loved the telephone. He stayed in the, the bedroom on the phone so long, I said, come on, you're ruining my dinner. Uh, and so he finally came on in and uh, had invited three or four of his very, very close friends. Well, do you know uh, the meal did turn out pretty good? He said, oh, that's pretty good. I said, pretty good, this is darn good, you know. <laughs> so um, that was a very, very short time before he was killed. But the people who were there that night said that they'd never seen that kind of humor. He said, do you really cook this? I said, yeah, I had help, but I really cooked it. Um, it's a memorable time for me because I'll never forget that. But um, it was his favorite setting was to be with his closest friends telling stories because he could tell them so effectively, you know. Uh, so I, like everybody else, would welcome a moment uh, when you had him to yourself because you didn't get that often. And then also he was a gatherer. He'd go around and see somebody and say, oh, come on, we're going to have dinner. You know, after a while you got a crowd, you know, which is <laughs> what we didn't want. Um, but he was one of my favorite persons uh, to have exchange with um, on an informal business. Um, but I'm, I'm really not, I don't think I'm all that enjoyable. I'd like to think that I would be because people would like being with me because I don't know what I would have to offer. Uh, if someone asked me, why do people like you? I don't have an answer. I'm glad that some people do. Um, and I'm really blessed to have a small circle of friends who will do anything I do. And I will never, ever disappoint people who do that when people believe in you. You owe them, in return, the promise of honesty and decency. Take me back to Muskogee, Oklahoma. I say that because as we are coming off of the 100-year anniversary of Tulsa, Oklahoma has such a rich history in terms of opportunity. So many people who were part of the diaspora after that awful circumstance in Tulsa. People had so much and were left without anything but their lives. And Muskogee was just, was it just north of Tulsa? You were born within that decade. Did your parents talk about it? Was that a point of reference for you? Naturally, my parents talked about it. Um, we all felt the pain of what had happened to those people's lives. You're taught that in your household. Don't ever rejoice over anybody's loss. And some of the people we knew personally who were good people, we knew them to be good people. We were active in our church and um, we went to conventions in different cities. We became acquainted with a lot of people who lived in other cities, and Tulsa was certainly one of them. And so you felt like it's awful that the color of your skin creates such havoc. We never could understand it, uh, really. 
And also what was difficult for us as a family, um, we didn't see any of that hostility around us. My father was well respected as a citizen of the city, Muskogee. And as a matter of fact, we saw, I mean, white people came in and out of our house like friends of the family. But what they were doing is coming to talk to my dad about some boy who got in trouble. They were planning to put him in jail. But my father used to plead with the jailers, like throwing kids in jail does nothing. Let's see what we can do to rehabilitate them. And so the city fathers liked the way daddy uh, had an attitude about other citizens. He said, you know, this boy has a good grandmother he's living with. His mother passed away. He's living with his grandmother. She's old, doesn't have time to watch over him like a younger mother would. And so he's made some mistakes, but that doesn't mean he can't be saved and salvaged. And so the mayor, the city fathers would come in and out of our households now. So we saw white people coming. Now we heard about prejudice and how white people didn't like black people, but that was not our case. My mother was part Indian, and um, so Native Americans came in and out of our house because they were friends. So we got an exposure that was different from a lot of other people. We saw these so-called bad people as good people just because they were Native American or, or white fathers running the city. That didn't mean they were all bad guys. And my father wouldn't have it any other way. So we were protected from hatred uh, in spite of the fact that Tulsa was a bad scene. I don't care any way you cut it. Uh, that was a bad, bad thing for a lot of people. They lost all their wealth. Um, and so you certainly have to know. But see, fortunately, our, our age helped us because we were still young and couldn't interpret all the moves that people were making and how to put them in the right slots. Um, but we knew that, you know, destroying people's property, burning their homes down, taking their money, taking their jobs, take, just abuse um, was the only thing you could call it. And we would all feel very badly about it, but didn't have an opportunity to do much about it. So we kind of escaped that because of the signs of the times. When, when you, at what point, how old were you when the reality of segregation set in? It took a long time because um, what I remember most, which was difficult, and that we escaped difficulty, we couldn't, because we were black, we couldn't use the water fountains downtown when we go in the stores. And so when we go, my mother would take us down and get some new shoes or some clothes or something. Uh, we thought we were headed for that water fountain because we thought it was Kool-Aid. You know, <laughs> somebody says white and colored. Uh, we thought it was Kool-Aid. And she just didn't want us to drink Kool-Aid. She just didn't tell us what the real issue was. And I guess it was her way of protecting us from racial prejudice that you can't drink the water because you're black. Uh, we knew that we went to a black school. We lived in half black and half white neighborhoods, so it wasn't all bad. Uh, we went to church in our own church, and those were all black people. So we knew the difference between black people and white people. What we 
escaped was the hatred and the bigotry that goes with it because our parents helped to protect us from so much of it. And we loved school. All of our teachers were black. We went to black school, of course. All of our teachers were wonderful people. We knew them from Sunday school and church and or their children were our friends. And so we had good time growing up. And they protected us from the hatred of the times. And that was good in one sense and bad in another. The good part is that we didn't have to grow up hating white people. Uh, because today I think I wouldn't like white people. You wouldn't? Huh? You say today you don't think you would. If I grew up in a hate in the hatred environment that really existed. Oh. If we hadn't had the protection and the shielding, I should say, of our parents, maybe we'd grow up today hating them. Uh, I don't hate white people today. I, uh, after having lived in segregation all these years and then working with Martin Luther King, the saint of um, goodness, who says that under the skin, we're all the same. When you hear that every day, uh, you learn not to hate that we've got to create a society where we all live as one because we all came here the very same way all of us, each of us was brought in this world the same way. A stork somewhere dropped you at an address somewhere, all of us. And so the hatred has come about as a result of changes that took place um, by people who have hatred inside and they learn to hate. It's a it's a contrived thing. You learn to hate. You're not born to hate. You learn to hate. And so when you learn that somehow love can overcome it, uh, you try to figure out where your love spots are, how you can help spread the love you can have um, with others and get them to see the way of wisdom. And what, at what point did you make that transition to Atlanta? Well, after Dr. King couldn't find anybody better than the name Ed Clayton, Ed said to him, you know, no money, I can't leave, I got a good job. Dr. King said, why don't you do this? They talked for an hour or so. Said, why don't we, I'm inviting you now to come down to Atlanta and let you see what we're doing and maybe you have a better picture of what I'm asking you to do. And Ed took him up on the offer and came down here to visit. He came back home to me and said, listen, those are some committed people. The struggle is real. Their devotion is real. Why don't we consider it? I said, moving from Hollywood, California? No way. But in the meantime, he met Mrs. King on the trip he would, while he was here and uh, found out that her interest was trying to do a concert to raise money to bring back to the organization and be her contribution. And so Ed said, oh, then you need my wife. Said, my wife is smart, she's on the ball. And she called me and said she wanted to do uh, concerts, but she couldn't get off the ground. And I said, well, I'd be glad to help you. And so really I went on trip with her and we just hit it off like old girlfriends. And now we've got a double dose of pressure 
because now she wanted me to come to Atlanta because that way I could travel with her to help her with her project. Ed comes to Atlanta to help Martin Luther King with his. Sound like a perfect matchup. Then they both worked hard on us and really convinced us after a long telephone conversation, convinced us to move. How many weeks did that take? Oh, I'm not sure of the time. It seemed like two, but <laughs> it was longer than that. But uh, it was, I think we were probably listening to our hearts. You know, we, we obviously had to read about all the black people getting beaten up for no cause and savagely treated. And when you concentrate on it, it makes your heart bleed. You know, maybe, and here we are living large, as I said, and having a comfortable life, and people here getting beaten up and killed. It sounds like a selfish mood to ignore something like that, and we couldn't do it, so we caved in and moved uh, to Atlanta. Uh, but I had the longest call uh, with Martin Luther King, and so I was hard to sell, and he finally convinced me. What was uh, the But set? guess what he said? What did he say? He said, if you'll just agree to come, I'll get you a new house, a dog, a maid, a housekeeper uh, when that one's off, someone who'll tend to your lawn, <laughs> and I'll buy you a new car. That I sounds said. like, how could you refuse that? So I said, oh, really? All of that? He said, yes. Well. The pressure was off. Now we become friends over the phone. We laughed about it. I said, okay, I want to meet the maid before I come. <laughs> but we acquiesced and we moved. And let me inject at this point. We never became sorry we did. Uh, because we saw the dedication of the people who were severely beaten or the children in Birmingham who were burned from lie that white people threw in the pool to keep them from swimming in the pool. And their parents had to pay taxes to get the pool in the city. Well, we saw the inequities. And it doesn't take long, Michelle, that if you're a decent person in your heart and in your soul, it doesn't take long to convince you that's a poor treatment for people who are doing nothing except trying to have a life and have what everybody else has. Children like to swim. People like to eat. People like to go downtown. People like to drink water from the water fountain that's convenient. These people are almost savagely treated. And if you've got a decency streak in your body, it doesn't take long to turn it around in the right direction. And that's how we ended up moving and enjoying it. Well, speaking of which, how did you break into the business? It's not even a break into. The break was made for you, or was it? It was interesting. I had no idea, had no plans to go into it. But Ralph McGill, whom I just absolutely adored, um, said that he liked the way I talked to white people. He said, you... <laughs> that plane... Uh, he said, you teach a lesson without preaching a sermon. I thought that was so neat. Um, and he said, and that makes people listen to what you have to say. He used to say that all the time. But he would set me up um, like 
to give just one example, and then I'll finish my story. Uh, they didn't have any black members of the press club here for a long, long time. And Mr. McGill and I would often go to lunch together. And so this particular day, the press club had a very interesting speaker, which he always did. People would clamor to go to their uh, press club uh, uh, lunches. But he said, come on, Zernona, let's go to lunch. And I said, okay, it didn't matter where he go because I loved him so much. But we got to the door and I said, oh, Mr. McGill, you know our policy here. Uh, he said, yeah, but tell me what it is. He said, you know, no black, we have no black members and we haven't yet allowed black membership. And he said, well, she is a member. And I thought he was just making that up. And he <laughs> said, really? And he reached in his pocket and pulled out a membership card and said, see, here it is. That's how I got in the press club. They still talk about me, uh, how I became a member of the press club. How did you so, become, like he just deemed it? He just decided to do that to break the barrier of no blacks allowed kind of thing. You know, he didn't like that. So now I became a member of the club. Um, but I said that to say that he often did things that were unexpected. So this particular day he said, Oh, Zernona, I've got to speak at a luncheon today and I can't make it now and I want you to fill in for me. So will you go to the group? It was a group of uh, uh, media men from uh, up north somewhere. I've forgotten what the conference was. But anyway, Mr. McGill called and said I was going to be a substitute for the speech. Well, I got there and um, they had to take me because Mr. McGill said, do it. <laughs> And so in my speech, I said to them that uh, Dr. King always had compliments for the press. And he said, although uh, you shouldn't disagree with your boss, I have to take exception with my boss uh, to say, I don't have the same respect for the industry that he does. And well, I said, that's, that's throwing down the gauntlet. Yes, yes. And here we were struggling in Birmingham and uh, St. Augustine in different places trying to break the barrier. Children couldn't even swim in the public swimming pools because of racial prejudice. And I thought that was so silly that their parents had to pay taxes, you know, for the city pool. And I said, um, this whole thing of racism is just idiotic to me. And I said, and I'll give you some examples. I said, at the television station, I'm sure they're covering this story as well. Um, you have a white assignment editor who gives a story to a writer, who gives it to a white reporter, who gets a white cameraman, and they all go out to the scene of the denial and uh, bring the film back to the lily white processor who gives it to a lily white editor, who gives it to a lily white anchor, and they come on, guess what? Isn't this awful? These kids are being burned up in the swimming pools. And I said, now, where's the difference here? The lily white station with this lily white everything is now talking how bad it is. You've got a shutout over here in the swimming pool. It's a shutout over there at the television station. And that was my speech. Well, when the event was over. I went back to my office and 
Mr. McGill called me and said, hey, Zernona, what'd you do today? He said, you got everybody in an uproar. He said, they're looking for you all over town. I said, oh my gosh. And he, he said, and one of them wants to take you to lunch. I said, oh my goodness, I guess I'll go. But if I'm not back in an hour, call, put out an APB on me. Well, what happened is they told me how embarrassing it was that I'd made that public statement. He said, but you know what? You did embarrass us and we're guilty. And so maybe it's about time we change our policy. And that was the beginning of their change the policy. And then they put me in to change the policy. So I became the first black person to have a show. They gave me, gave me a budget and told me to fix up the station the way I wanted, do whatever I wanted. And oh, it was just great. And that's how I got into it. Thank you for joining us for our special podcast series with the incomparable Zernona Clayton. If you enjoyed today's conversation with Big, we hope you'll come back next time for more insider stories and reflections from one of the first ladies of the civil rights movement. Subscribing makes it easy. You can find us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, YouTube, or your favorite podcast platform. And please, please be sure to rate and review us to help others find the show. This has been Zernona Clayton, the podcast, a production of Boom Integrated and DA Brand Activation Group. Our podcast is executive produced by Naima Rashad, Dennis Adamovich, Adrian Glover, and Robin Lai, with post-production by Boom. I'm Michelle Miller, your host. Thanks so much for listening. And don't miss the documentary, Zenona Clayton, A Life in Black and White. Available anytime on Brown Sugar, Bounce TV's subscription video on demand service. Download the Brown Sugar app today on your phone, PC, or smart TV. Go to brownsugar.com for more information.